Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. Y'all can take a seat. Man, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Happy Easter, everybody. If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, I am swimming in a sea of pastels up here. It's great. You guys all look like Easter eggs. That is not a comment on your body type or size. That is a comment on your outfit. Uh, maybe today we will look like Easter eggs after lunch. But it's good to have you with us today. Um, we're making some really big, weighty claims, and I recognize that we're kind of all over the spectrum, all across the board when it comes to what we believe, if we believe, how we think about Christianity, how we think about the church. So hopefully today we'll make some sense of the claims that we're making. Uh, That's the hope for today. Back in 2019, Ben Shapiro was actually asked about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if you don't, uh, most of us know Ben Shapiro as a political conservative commentator on the television, but in addition to that, he's also a practicing Orthodox Jew. So in this interview, it came up, what do you think about Jesus of Nazareth? And uh, the, the, the exact question is, what do you think he was? And here was his response. He said, what do I think he was historically? I think he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble. Just like a lot of other Jews at the time who were crucified for tr- trying to lead revolts against the Romans and got killed for their trouble. And then the interviewer goes on and says, oh, okay, so it became legend and story and it became a bigger and bigger deal at the time. And he said, yeah, he had a group of followers, and then that gradually grew. And then the interviewer said, do you believe he was resurrected? And he said, no, that's not a Jewish belief. And he goes, okay, I just wanted to check. And the interviewer laughs, and he goes, so you don't believe in zombies? And then his final response was, no, no, no. And they keep talking. And the question I want to wrestle with today is, man, are we just crazy? Like, do we believe in zombies, or do we believe in some weird fairy tale? And here's what's really crazy that right now, today, and all over the course of this weekend across the globe, there are millions and millions and millions of Christians who are gathered together in places like Ghana and Mumbai, India, and Iraq, 
and Cambodia and in China and in Ireland and here in Oklahoma, all over the world, millions of people are gathered together to say, Jesus is alive and we are worshiping him as God. Wow, that's crazy. Like, have we lost our minds? So here, here are three important questions that we need to wrestle with. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? And if so, why does it matter? All right, if it did happen, why does it matter? And maybe most importantly, what does it mean for me personally. Now, here's what's really crazy. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, Coming into this room, I want to make the case that all of us are haunted. Whether you're a Christian or not, all of us are haunted in some ways by these questions. There's a philosopher, Charles Taylor, who pointed out that in our secular world today, we're all haunted. If you're a skeptic, you're haunted by the possibility of belief. What if this is actually real? What if God is real? What if Jesus is God? What if he really did rise from the dead? You could be an atheist in the room today, and deep down somewhere in the back of your head, you sometimes have doubts about your doubts. You sometimes have skepticism about your skepticism. And what's even more bizarre is if you're a follower of Jesus, you're staking your claim on the resurrection of Jesus. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are haunted, not by belief, but by the possibility that maybe this is all just made up that maybe this is all just something that our grandparents told us and it's like something that we lie to ourselves to feel good about so that way when we die, we don't just disappear into the void of nothingness. So this is this reality that whether you're a skeptic or a believer in the room, we're all haunted either by the possibility that this is real or by the possibility that it's all made up. And I don't know of a better place to go to answer these questions than 1 Corinthians 15. As a church, we've been studying this particular letter written by the Apostle Paul for several months. We're skipping ahead, and there's something he says in chapter 15 that is powerful to understand these questions. So in light of that, I want to read it one more time. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. We'll have it up on the screen. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That word gospel means good news. I would remind you of the good news of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a possibility of believing true things, but not believing them in a way that you build your life on those realities. And that's, in Oklahoma, a very common thing, where people say they believe in Jesus, they say they believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they believe in vain in the sense of they've not built their life on these claims. It has no weight or bearing in how they live in the day-to-day. That's believing in vain. Now look at verse 3. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another uh, name for Peter, then to the 12 apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this begs the obvious question, did the resurrection of Jesus actually really happen? Well, the secular claim to that question is no. 
the resurrection of Jesus did not happen. It's a made-up fairy tale. Now, there, there are at least three theories that people will give, real briefly, three theories that people will give to prove that this is all just made up. The first one is known as the swoon theory. And the idea here is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just fainted. He just passed out. He appeared to be dead, was laid in the tomb, and then later woke up and made his way out of the tomb. And the disciples mistook that for him being raised from the dead. The problem with that theory is that he was executed by a Roman soldier who was a professional executioner, uh, checked the body of Jesus before taking him down the cross to make sure he was dead. When they then laid him in the tomb, it was Jewish custom to wrap dead people in around 75 pounds of burial linens and spices to keep the body from smelling. And so he would have been wrapped in this. Then they put a, a, a large stone over the tomb and placed two guards outside the tomb to keep anybody from stealing the body of Jesus because that was a concern that they had. So this theory would essentially have us believe that Jesus somehow woke up in the tomb, take, he, he was able to take off all the burial linens even though he was badly beaten and crucified, and then he was able to move the large stone away, slip past the guards, walk the two miles or so to where his disciples were, and ta-da, appear to them and have them take the, the bloodied, severed body of Jesus and think, well, yeah, he must have been raised from the dead. It just doesn't make any sense as a theory. The second theory that is often thrown out in secular culture is the stolen body theory. And again, the idea here is that somebody stole the body of Jesus because they wanted to make it seem as though he rose from the dead. The problem with that is that those guards were posted out front precisely to keep that from happening. And rarely do people make up a lie and then live their whole life saying that lie and then get persecuted and suffer and even put to death defending that lie that Jesus rose from the dead. That theory just doesn't add up. The third theory is the ancient worldview theory. And it goes something like this. Well, of course they believed in the resurrection because those people back then believed in all sorts of weird things. They believed in ghosts and goblins and gods and fairies. And today we're people of science and reason and logic. And we know that people don't rise from the dead. They just simply were gullible and would believe anything. C.S. Lewis, who I love uh, virtually everything that he writes and says, he, he refers to this as chronological snobbery, that you and I tend to think of ourselves as more brilliant than these people who built the pyramids, you know? Like, we send talking poop emojis on our phone, but somehow we're smarter than people back then, right? And, and here's the issue there. The issue is that actually, like, the Greeks and the Romans did not believe in a resurrection from the dead at all. They had no category for that. So it's not like they're gullible to believe that. They, they had no category for it. Jews, likewise, only believed in one resurrection of the dead that would happen at the end of history, and all of the people of God would be involved in that. They didn't have a category for one person in the middle of history being raised individually from the dead. That was not something they had a category for. And finally, what I love is if you read every account of the resurrection when Jesus goes and he shows up to his disciples, men and women alike, they're all shocked and surprised that he's alive. And it all takes them a minute to really believe it. Even Thomas, one of them is like, I won't believe it until I'm able to touch the scars in his hand and his side. I, I, like, I can't believe it. They weren't gullible to believe it. They had a hard time believing it. They were blown away and surprised that Jesus was alive. So the Christian claim is, yes, the resurrection really happened. We would point to the empty tomb. How do you explain the empty tomb? Nobody was able to... Uh, draw out a body. Nobody was able to point to the bones and say, there he is. See, stop making up this lie. 
In addition to that, Jesus' family worshiped him as God. Now listen, your family might like you. Your family might even love you. Your family might even be big fans of you, but could you imagine a brother or a sister that grew up with you suddenly worshiping you as God? That's bizarre, right? Like Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters became a key intricate part of the early church, even hosting the early church in their homes. And later, one of them goes on to write one of the books of the Bible, his brother James. Like they believed that Jesus was the eternal, uncreated creator of all things. That's something really tough to convince my brothers and sisters of. Then the countless eyewitnesses. Over 500 people at once saw the risen Jesus. And I love the way Paul says it. Did you catch it in 1 Corinthians 15? He goes, most of them are still alive. The implication is, go ask them yourself. Don't take my word for it. Only a few of them have died. Most of these people are alive. 500 people, you think 500 people are lying about this? They all saw it. Go ask them. Number four, the transformation of the disciples. How do you explain these disciples that all scattered when Jesus got arrested and then even Peter denying Jesus uh, when Jesus was about to be uh, uh, executed on the cross? How do you explain the scattering of the disciples and then after they encounter the risen Jesus, it's like they're filled with a bizarre level of courage. And I think it's 10 out of the 12 end up becoming martyrs for the faith, giving their life and the claim that Jesus is alive. How do you explain the transformation if the resurrection didn't happen? In addition to that, the fact that we know Jesus's name, uh, pastor and theologian Fleming Rutledge made the case that we don't have any historical record at all of one person's name who is crucified until after Jesus. Think about that. Could you name one person that was crucified by Rome? No, you can't because crucifixion in its essence was meant to destroy your name, to delete you, to say you don't even deserve to be alive. We're going to erase you from our memory. So we have no historical record of anyone who is ever crucified except for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who didn't stay dead but came back from the dead. And then finally, number six, the unexplainable growth of the early church. Christianity was one of many options. It was certainly the worst option if you wanted to be accepted by your pagan neighbors, if you wanted Rome to uh, embrace you, and if you wanted to have success in uh, a Greco-Roman first century world. It was the worst option. To be a Christian was to be ostracized from the community. It was to often be arrested and persecuted, to have your house pillaged, and many, many, many Hundreds and thousands of Christians were executed saying that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is alive. And yet, by 300 AD, the low estimates are between 7 to 10 million people in Rome were claiming that Jesus was alive. About 10% of the Roman Empire had become Christians in the first 300 years. How do you explain the growth of the early church if this didn't really happen? So here's the point. The point is Christians believe that Jesus actually physically, literally, bodily rose from the dead because secular explanations for the empty tomb don't hold up and the only logical explanation, the sheer weight of evidence points to the fact that Jesus really did rise and is alive today. Now that leads to the, the question that's bigger than that maybe. Why does that matter? Because my bet is that most of us came in the room believing this. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Thanks for the history lesson, Andrew. But what does this mean? What, what, how do we make sense of this? Well, that leads me to the second thing of why this matters. Here's what I want to contend. When things get quiet in your soul, 
when it's late at night and you wake up in the middle of the night. Or maybe when you're sitting around by yourself and you have a, a glass or two of bourbon and you're processing things that you don't expect to process, the deep things, the existential things, the things that I want to wrestle with, the things that I want to point you to are that deep down, I think all of us acknowledge and have this haunting feeling that there must be more to this life than what we have currently. There must be more. You know, we live in a world that literally has everything that you could ever want and ever imagine literally offered to you at your fingertips. Money and possessions and toys and sexual experiences and all-inclusive vacations, world travel, fine fine dining, Amazon same-day shipping. How crazy. DoorDash, I can press a button on my phone and have someone bring me food to my door. Third-wave coffee shops, parks, parks for dogs, a, a, a thunder team that's winning games finally. Like, like, this is a great time to be alive. Everything we could ever want is just out there ready and offered. In addition to that, it's also truly one of the most safe, most equitable, most free, and most financially prosperous moments in the history of the world. And yet, and yet, depression is on the rise. Suicide is now the leading cause of death among men. Our therapists and counselors in the city are booked solid for weeks, sometimes months out due to rising anxiety. Those who belong to Gen Z in our city, those who belong to Gen Z are experiencing an unprecedented crisis of meaning and identity that has almost never been seen before by any other culture. Many of us are struggling financially and living paycheck to paycheck. And even those of us who have acquired Everything that America holds out to us as the good life, deep down, still have this haunting feeling, there must be more. I'm missing something. Something is off. David Foster Wallace, who is one of my favorite American authors, uh, not a follower of Jesus, was an atheist, struggled with depression, and tragically took his own life in 2008. Before he took his life, he wrote these words. He said, it's something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances, or the economy, or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and in my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. The sadness that I was going through was a real America type of sadness. I was white, upper-middle class, upper class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it play out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. This lostness, this haunting feeling that there must be more. What's the answer to our brokenness? What is the answer to this haunting feeling that there must be more to this life? Well, what culture tells us is this. Technology is the answer. Technology is the answer. As we advance as a society and the more we uh, can rally behind technology and our world will slowly start to get better and better and better until we arrive at a utopia. We're just not there yet. Or politics is the answer. If we can just all learn to stop being so ignorant and stop being so foolish and embrace the right political party, aka my political party, and if we can vote for the president that's going to fix this, and if we can get the right Senate, and if we can get the right political persuasion, and blah, 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 if we can get all the stuff that we need, we'll finally turn this thing around. Our personal freedom 
and autonomy is the answer. If we can just throw off all those religious restraints meant to repress us and keep us down, if we can destroy our grandparents' ethics that are trying to ruin our lives and restrict our freedoms, if we can just do what feels good in the moment and do what we want to do and, and, and pursue pleasure and joy the way that we want, then we'll truly be free. Social justice is the answer. If we can identify and tear down every bit of oppression and inequality in the world, then we can finally have the world that we long for. That's the problem is we just don't care about global humanity enough. Or money's the answer. If we can just get that financial raise or turn this economy around or have all the possessions that I've wanted to have, all the things that are on my, my uh, wish list on Amazon, all the things that I dream about, if I could just get that, if I could acquire, then I'd have all that I'd want. I'd be safe, secure, and happy. Or forget about all of this. YOLO's the answer. Stop wrestling with these questions. Life is short. Just have fun, man. Have fun. Stop stressing about existential crisis. Just enjoy life while you can. And yet, friends, we've tried all of these things, and not one of them has worked for us. Technology doesn't work. The last 120 years has seen some of the most technological advances that any culture has ever seen, and it's been one of the most bloody, violent, and dark in the history of the world. Social media has become a tool not for further connection and community, but different ways for us to cancel one another. Politics, we've had massive political shifts and changes that are almost unprecedented in the last 15 or so years. We went from Obama to Trump to Biden, and the only thing that stayed the same, the one constant, is that we're still a hot mess. Personal freedom and autonomy, hey friends, freedom is not the same thing as meaning. And the only thing we care about as a culture is freedom. And the more we put stuff in the freedom bucket, the more the bucket of meaning and purpose and identity is shrinking and we have no idea who we are or why we are. Freedom is not the same thing as meaning. Social justice and a culture that talks more about love and diversity and equality and inclusion than ever before we are increasingly more divided, more tribal, and more filled with suspicion and hatred for all the other groups out there. Money, that doesn't fix us. I mean, you know, you know if you're honest with yourself that there are people in your life that have what you want, but they don't have what you really want. They have what you think you want, and then now that they've achieved and acquired and have all the stuff, they're still broken. They're still the same people. It hasn't fixed them. And YOLO, you only live once, just enjoy it. Hey, friends, you can only play existential whack-a-mole for so long, right? Like, uh, oh, why do I exist? I'll hit it with a vacation. What happens after I die? I'll hit it with a, a night out at my favorite restaurant. What's the purpose and meaning of life? Is this all there is? I'll hit that with just a latte from my favorite coffee shop. Like, we, you can only play existential whack-a-mole for so long before you're caught up with these haunting questions. Is there not more to this life? Is there not anything else out there? Here's what's crazy. You and I as a culture, we can't agree on the answer to the problem because our culture hasn't even agreed on what the problem really is. And here's where the claim of Christianity comes in. The claim of Christianity is that the ultimate problem, the ultimate problem is sin and is death. 
that you and I, friends, we were created for God. We were created for God like a car is created to run on gasoline. If you dump milk in the car, it doesn't work. And we've tried to push God out and still have the heaven and the kingdom that we want, the life that we want, but we've pushed out the life giver. And the problem, friends, is that it's not just that I'm uh, generally a good person and occasionally do bad things. The problem is that I am by nature and choice a sinner. I do the bad things that I do because I am bad to my core. That doesn't mean that I'm, it's impossible to do good things, but my heart is so bent to dysfunction and disordered things that I take the good gifts that God has given, like food and sex and alcohol, and I twist those good gifts into God's to name me and define me and fill me. Friends, our problem is that we are sinful. We are selfish. We are prideful. We are unloving. For all of our talk about love, we're a hateful people. We are full of envy. We are unwilling to forgive those who harm us. We want to do vengeance on those who do wrong to us. We desire the very things that God says will kill us, and we say, la, 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 la. No, they won't. I want them anyway. We have rejected God at every level, and it has not led to life. It's led to death. Romans 6.23 says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. When you plant sin, when you put it in the ground and water it and tend it, death is what comes up out of the ground. And our sin has unleashed brokenness and dysfunction and death into God's good world. And as a result, the problem, friends, is not out there. It's not with that group. It's not with that people. It's not with that party, that issue. The problem is in here. It's us. And for God to fix the problem, he either has to figure out a way to forgive us or destroy us. And yet here's the profoundly good news, that that verse doesn't stop there, that the wages of sin is death, but it goes on. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, God did not leave us to ourselves. He didn't leave us to die. He didn't say, you've made your bed, now just sleep in it. God left heaven and came to this earth and the person of Jesus Christ, he lived the life that we could not live. And Jesus Christ did something in his life that's bringing us life at every level. Notice how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, three. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. If, if you wanna know the core aspect of Christianity, what this is, all about why we gather on Sundays, here it is. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he, raised, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, this is a historical event, Christ died, that has spiritual significance for your life and mine. He died for our sins. Growing up in church, that made no sense to me. It sounded like an act of love. God loved you so much that he died. He ran into the burning building and gave his life. He jumped into the ocean and drowned to death to prove his love to you. Didn't make any sense. But as you read scripture carefully, what you begin to realize is that Christ died for our sins, meaning that you and I were in the burning building. And to go a step further, we died in the burning building. And yet Jesus runs in and his offering of giving his life in our place is the very thing that gives us life. 
We weren't just like swimming and struggling and about to drown. We drowned in the ocean, and it was his love that came for us and made our dead heart come alive. Christ died for our sins on the cross. He took my place, my sin, my shame, and the guilt that I deserved, and he suffered, bled, and died in my place. And we wouldn't have a story if it wasn't for the next line that says, he was buried, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Jesus' brainstem turned back on. His heart started beating again. He had blood pumping through his veins, and that shows that God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son as perfect and complete for us. And it also means that there's coming a day where this risen Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, will return to this earth, wipe away every tear from every eye, and remake this thing the way that he intended it to be. This is why we gather. This is why we celebrate. This is why we sing. It's been said today, but I want to say it again. We are not here celebrating our morality. Just spend some time with us, and you'll realize we're a struggling bunch. We are here celebrating the morality and perfection of Jesus Christ in our place. We are celebrating that he died for me. We are celebrating that he rose again so that I could have life and we could live in the world as he intended it to be. Jesus and his resurrection changes everything. And friends, this is good news not good advice. <laughs> good advice is don't smoke or drink or chew or go, go with girls who do. And, and in Choctaw, Oklahoma, where I grew up in, that was really good advice. You really had to pay attention to those words. I need to make sure I know who to date and who not to based on if they dip or not, right? This is not good advice. This is news. It's good news. News is something that as a result of this happening, everything is different. You don't have to love it or hate it or what. It just, this happened. Jesus died for sins and rose again from the dead. That's good news. And if you will place your faith in him, he will forgive you and he will bring you into his kingdom when he returns. This is good news. The whole storyline of scripture is about two different men in two different gardens. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. He says, for as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The story starts with a man named Adam in the garden, Eden, telling God, not your will, but mine be done. And as a result, death and dysfunction are unleashed into this world. This biblical story ends with another man in another garden, Jesus in Gethsemane, Telling God the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And as a result of Jesus' sacrificial death and his continual resurrection and his future return, you and I can have life. This is what Easter is all about. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? I can't help but wonder that there are people in the room who hear all of this and go, yeah, this is good news for most everybody, but if you really knew me, if you really knew my past, if you knew my history, if you knew what I carry deep down in my chest, if you knew the things that I'd done, not only could God never have anything to do with me, but people would want nothing to do with me. And if that's your inner dialogue, if that's your your internal objections, I just want you to simply consider some of the major themes around the people that Jesus was drawn to in his life and then after his resurrection. Because what you'll see is that Jesus, after his resurrection, doesn't go to Pontius Pilate, or Caesar, or the Roman army. 
he shows up to the least likely people imaginable, who are certainly some of the worst people imaginable. Jesus, in his earthly life, is drawn to a woman named Mary Magdalene who had seven demons, seven demons filled with spiritual darkness, and Jesus loved her and set her free. He's drawn to people like Peter, who literally denied even knowing Jesus after spending three years with him. And Peter, after the death of Jesus, goes back to fishing, which is a strong, powerful metaphor for saying, I guess there's nothing to this Jesus stuff, and there's nothing about his life that's significant for mine. I'm going to go back to the life that I had before he met me. And yet Jesus shows up to Peter in the exact same spot that he found him when he first called him to be a disciple, restores him, forgives him, brings him back. Peter becomes one of the greatest leaders of the church. Thomas, who has all of his friends see the risen Jesus and he was like out getting groceries or something. And he's like, dang it, I didn't see it. I don't believe it. I have to be there and see. Full of doubt, Jesus is drawn to Thomas in the middle of his doubt. Friends, if you're here today and you're a doubter, God's not turned off by you. In fact, he loves doubters. He's probably thumping you on the chest right now saying, I've been trying to get your attention. I've been trying to get your attention. Like you have questions, you have doubt. That's he, he loves doubters. And then finally, Paul, the apostle. Before Paul is an apostle, he's Paul the terrorizer. He's killing Christians. He's trying to persecute the church and do away with it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least likely apostle. Jesus never should have appeared to me. And yet here he was. I was in the middle of trying to kill Christians and Jesus showed up and he called me to himself. Philip Yancey says this, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. Much to their surprise, he honored instead people who have little value in the visible world, the poor and the meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and the thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes, the prodigal, not the responsible son, the good Samaritan, not the good Jew, Lazarus, not the rich man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon expressed it, his glory was that he laid aside his glory to gather together the outcasts. That's what Easter is, friends. It's a gathering together of the outcasts. And if you feel like a social pariah, if you feel like you've done stuff that's wrong, if you have a baggage and a past and things that you would do anything to get rid of, I'm here telling you, Jesus is wildly in love with you and he died for you and he rose again for you and he wants to forgive you and bring you back to himself. And here's the response. Here are three postures that he's inviting you into. Repent. That simply means to turn. You're going this way right now, pursuing sin, pursuing a life separated from God. To repent is to turn towards God and pursue him instead. You're being invited to believe that Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a political revolutionary. He's more than just a Jewish rabbi, that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, that he is alive. And you're being invited to follow after him to come after me, as Jesus says, to become a disciple, to learn and relearn what it is to truly be a human and live in this world the way that God intended you to live in this world. I want to invite you, would you stand with me? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we are honored by your presence. We love that you're here. We don't ever want to do anything to embarrass you. Uh, we want to invite you to seriously weigh and consider 
not just the logic, but the beauty of what Jesus has done for you and realize that he's, he's really calling you to himself today. He's calling you to himself today. Here in just a minute, followers of Jesus are gonna come and receive communion, which is a, a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us, where we look back on the cross, but we also look ahead to the future where Jesus returns to remake this world. And there's the scene in the very end of the story, it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where we're gonna be gathered together in the kingdom of God, seated at Jesus's table, and we're gonna be able to hold up our glasses and worship and celebrate that when I was far from God, Jesus came for me. When I was lost, he found me. When I was dead, he made me alive. We're gonna celebrate that. And so in light of that future meal, we're gonna take communion today. And I wanna say, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a meal for you. This is a meal of faith, a meal of remembrance, a meal of celebration. You're gonna come and grab the bread and grab the cup, the body, the blood of Jesus, come back to your seat, and we're gonna take it all together. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I wanna ask you to not come and take this meal. Again, we don't wanna do anything to embarrass you, but this is a faith meal, right? So it's not weird for you to not take this meal. It'd actually be weird to take the meal if you're not yet a Christian. What I would wanna invite you to do, if you've got questions about this, or if you want to learn more, or if you wanna talk to somebody, Pastor Aaron Addison is gonna raise his hand. He's back here to my right, to your left in this back corner. When everybody else is heading towards the table to receive communion, I wanna invite you to just go back there and talk with Pastor Aaron. It doesn't matter if there's more than a few of you. It can be as many people as you want. We'll get together in a, in a, in a room and just answer questions and pray and talk. So if that's something you want to do, we would love, love to talk with you about it. And then at the end of the service, we're going to have men and women down front ready to pray with you and talk with you as needed there as well. So followers of Jesus, when you're ready, come grab the bread, grab the cup, come back to your seat, and let's celebrate the resurrected King.
hey, because Jesus is alive, he can move right now and remind us of and pour out his love in our hearts. Followers of Jesus, we were dead and his body was broken so that we could be made alive. Remembering and thinking about, meditating about his body that was broken for you in the middle of your sin, you're invited to take and eat and remember.